2: Fun topic on this project.
0: Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today.
1: When I accepted that job, I was working with elders, tribal elders, to record traditional cultural places and sacred mm-hmm. sites. I was relocating trails you know, over mountains. I was surveying rivers and looking for pictographs. It was really a fun time, and we did a lot of partnership.
3: Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here. So let's get into it. Welcome back. This week's episode features an interview with Ira Matt. Ira is the Director of the Office of Native American Affairs at the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, the ACHP for short, and that is the Federal Historic Preservation Agency. Before joining the ACHP, he worked for the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes for 16 years in varying capacities, including as a Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, a Resource Advisor, a Tribal Archaeologist, and as a Wildland Firefighter. Ira is Salish and an enrolled member of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes of Western Montana, and he received his B.A. and M.A. in Anthropology from the University of Montana, and a Master of Jurisprudence in Indian Law from the University of Tulsa College of Law. I was so very excited to do this interview with him because I wanted to learn more about preservation from a non-Western perspective. We cover a lot of cultural nuances in the conversation, and ultimately, it comes back to compassion. If you're interested in working with any of the tribal nations or curious how to navigate working with people of different backgrounds, then this is definitely an episode for you. I'll put links to the ACHP and a few other resources in the show notes, so be sure to check those out. So with that, I hope you enjoy the conversation between me and Ira Matt. Why don't we jump right in. And so tell me what got you into preservation?
1: You know, unlike a lot of other people, like you and I were just talking about that was never a goal of mine growing up. I mean, the concept of preservation didn't even register to me as like a poor Indian kid. It, it wasn't uh, on my mind. I grew up racing third horses. Like we raised them and we raced them. And my destiny at the time was to be a jockey, like my dad and my grandfather. We spent all of our time, you know, chasing dirt tracks, which are kind of the, uh, you know, not fancy horse tracks throughout the Northwest in Canada, I was riding horses we were sleeping in horse trailers and stalls when we would go to different tracks, uh, just because we'd spent so much time working and no point in leaving the track and getting a hotel. So that was, you know, kind of my childhood. Yeah, it was my path and where I was gonna go. Um eventually, you know, fast forward some years, grew to the point where my dad and I didn't exactly meet eye to eye and we couldn't exist in the same world. So uh I moved back to my res, uh, my Indian reservation, and started fighting wildfire with my uncle and it was a chance to be on the ranch too, where I was able to deal with all the horses and at the point where we're getting them bred, we're having the babies breaking them. So still working the horse lifestyle, but started fighting fire. When I say I go to the ranch, that's not like a Hollywood version of the ranch. For tribal people, it's our allotment, which is the portion of land that the government sectioned out of our original homelands that they put us on. That today, 2022 still doesn't have access to a landline phone, doesn't have cell phone coverage and the only internet you get through satellite. And it's pretty unstable and spotty out there. So. It's in the middle of nowhere still, but you know, it was at that point when I looked back really without knowing it, that my path towards preservation began. And I'd always absorbed the culture from my dad. Places we went, visited, there was tribal people there. But it was my uncle who really started to teach me about stuff, the traditional plants and what their uses were. Hunting, but beyond hunting, understanding why we hunted, how to read the landscape and we talked and, and about, and we met with the old people and learned about the old ways. And he just taught me that surviving in this modern era as an Indian, isn't just about assimilating, it's really understanding who you are and selectively moving forward. And then of course he had me working fire, which was something that he did and his other brothers, you know, we were all in the forest industry, but a couple of my uncles lived in the fire world and. That was a big thing for me. I still reflect on because fighting fire wasn't just about suppression. We just didn't want to run out and put fire out. It was wildfire. Where we're at in Western Montana, it's heard from the ranch. It's isolated. We're surrounded by timber, grasslands, and shrub areas. I was on what they call an the initial attack crew. So I was a small kind of highly trained crew that was meant to get out and suppress those fires before they spread and became large fires and were dealt with by other crews. So that's what we worked with, me and my friends. We spent time doing that, but it wasn't just about suppression to, you know, Smokey the Bear, all of you can prevent forest fires. We were putting a lot of fire on the land to, you know, a prescribed fire. That was a big thing that my tribe did, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, uh, because it was part of the natural landscape. It's part of. What always helped us regenerate the areas that we used to harvest, right? Uh, places that the, uh, the, elk and the other animals liked to graze in, it helped us control the landscape in a way that was beneficial for us, traditional. And that's something that stopped for a long time with, you know, the federal government and their practices and really before tribes were allowed to come back into self-government. So that's something that we started doing and for me. I was growing into it, right? Their system was there, but we were placing fire on the landscape to bring back huckleberry patches or to replace camas fields. In addition to just cleaning up these areas and reducing those threat. Um, and I got to work as a resource advisor as part of this. And in that arena, I was starting to help with the decision-making. So even in a wildfire, there are decision points. You can decide where you want to dig some line where you want like a slurry drop from an airplane. And what we tried to do from our tribal perspective was inform as much of our actions because those had impacts. Everybody thinks fighting wildfire, you're saving the world or you're destroying a lot in the process. And so we tried to be controlled and I started working in balancing our suppression with the protection of our cultural places. How do we align this with traditional trails we used to use, gathering locations, areas where there's archeological sites or structures, even those that were in this allotment era, those in the 1900s, cabins and everything of that nature, because our tribal history, of course, didn't stop at the time of contact. It's just adapted to the circumstances around it. So we're not prehistory, as a lot of people say. It's just changed through time. And so that was something that I started working it. I didn't, again, no intention on ending up in this world of historic preservation. Didn't even quite understand it existed. I was doing it as part of our life and just to our people were who wanted to see that stuff protected. And so it was great, you know, the crew itself, the fire crew, these are people who just lived the life, they, they spent time in the woods, they hunted, uh, you know, they gathered, they did their songs and dances, and we were able to just exist as tribal people trying to blend these different worlds and what we were doing. And so that started to bring me into it. And really one day it was, brand- I think I was out in our choir truck, if I can think of the exact moment. And mm-hmm. this person called a tribal historic preservation officer approached me and she And Watership Pablo at the time, she just asked me if I was interested in leading one of her field crews. Right. And, uh, I mean, they were in need of somebody with wilderness savvy. I had that background out there. I had some cultural knowledge and not just an awareness of the culture was what they were after it was something that you and I were speaking about earlier. It's that arena of how to facilitate it into this managed balancing culture with process, with the legal structure. Mm-hmm. but also to really recalibrate those Western processes to meet our tribal values it needs. Right. Um, and for us at the time, of course, that's a National Historic Preservation Act for everybody out there, NHPA. So she challenged me to shift from pharmacy, which I was in at the time, to anthropology. Mm-hmm. And really her promise was just a uh, uh, less financially lucrative work. Yes. <laughs> <Not all day. laughs> I didn't realize right how much less at the time, but that was at that point. I, I took some classes. I just was flat out engaged with humans because I spent my life around animals and I was dealing with the wilderness and the culture. But humans became to me this very interesting concept because there's so much variation, yeah, unpredictable and. Just trying to, to work in that arena. And so then I kind of just started to step into what became my life. When I accepted that job, I was working with elders, tribal elders, to record traditional cultural places and sacred mm-hmm. sites. I was relocating trails yeah. over mountains. I was surveying rivers and looking for pictographs. It was really a fun time. And we did a lot of partnership with universities and other tribes. We were up in uh, Glacier National Park doing ice patch archaeology. You know, doing climate change studies in the late two thousands to the early 20 teens on these.
3: Wow. You just blew my mind. I've never even thought about ice patch archaeology like that. It's fascinating. <laughs>
1: <You> <laughs> they They're way up on top of the mountains and I hate heights. Mm-hmm. So I was willing to lead the crews up there. They just weren't allowed <laughs> to talk to me the whole time until we were flat and stable, but That's fair. <laughs> you know, ice patch archaeology, which For anybody wondering, what is ice patch? I mean, glaciers always move, they're larger moving. Ice patches exist up near them, higher than glaciers and they're static. They just grow and create layers just like the earth. And so you, they have a stratigraphy, but when they're melting now because of climate change, all kinds of organic components are coming out of these. And ours was a combination of cultural and kind of paleoecological. So we were studying the environmental components, but also any cultural items that would come out. And it was fascinating study. It was over five years, but you know, that was my life getting to do things like that, getting grants to survey for old battle site areas, protect burial sites, just everything that the elders who would get together really wanted us to pursue because it had been so long since we'd had the ability to protect our culture, to survey, to identify, to speak on our own behalf, that it Mm -hmm. was this wish list. And we balanced that with opportunity. So it was exciting. Um, but you know, I'll stop right there for that question, right? Because I'm going to tell you, there's a long gap between that and you know, how old I am now and all of the boring paperwork I do. So (laughs) we can fill that in later.
3: That's fair. So for me, Preservation has always been focused on buildings. So I love the story and the narrative that you're telling and how it's really more the landscape, the trails, the people. It's so much more than just the building itself Uh, and the ice patches, which also blow my mind. Talking about the conversations you have, the elders and being able to actually do the tribal work that that the elders wanted to do that you're able to do for yourselves as opposed to relying on the government. So I'd love to hear more about that.
1: So working with the elders is fascinating because that's... It's, it is what made, when I look back, when I made that joke about stepping from pharmacy into preservation, I would do it again a thousand times because of how rewarding it became, me not knowing the purpose I had for my own people, for other people though, that I work with because I was in all of that travel I did with my dad, you know, under these tracks and that education, he forced on us and uh, you know, I mean this in a loving way when he said it, but he said it about a thousand times because of the struggles he had in his life. As somebody who grew up without electricity, without water, he always gave his sons, he had four of us, two options in life. Mm-hmm. He would say, you can either go to college or I'm going to kill you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, because I'm not raising you to not succeed. And he always say education, something they can't take away. Absolutely. <laughs> His life was one where they existed, being drafted to the wars, being really in those eras of the federal tribal policy, he grew up in termination era, you know, an official federal policy of terminating the relationship with Indian tribes. The fact that they had treaties that they elected that they're going to unilaterally step away from, well, they're going to keep everything they got from the treaty, but all those other obligations ended. And that happened <laughs> dozens upon dozens of tribes. And, So his position was always get educated. It's yours and move on. So I found that when I was around a lot of the elders and they lived like him, but there was also just this knack I had to be able to think a little different, to speak a little different, but to understand their world, my cultural world, but understand the other external world, a world that I could also exist in. So I was a conduit in so many ways for the elders and we had talked, and it was one of those things where i understood how they operated in our culture even if they're not our formal leadership anymore they have this position where they're highly respected for their wisdom and experience we have committees that we'll speak to uh, formally through our tribal historic preservation office But really, decisions of the tribe almost all go to them for input and advice that is weighed very heavily because that's their role now is to advise Mm -hmm. knowing that somebody else is to make the decision. And that took me a while to learn that. Oh, interesting. I was now in charge. They might be more influential, more wise, more experienced, but they were going to give me their two cents. I was supposed to take it into account with, Everything else that I was dealing with as the person who was driving the bus and figure out what that decision was as we worked with the elders. When I was young, it's just a matter of, oh, what, what do you guys have an interest in? And they would express an interest in visiting an area they hadn't been to, to record stories, to just have a discussion and a chat. We didn't know with the value of their words, what they would be one day, but it was important to have them. From both the cultural perspective, but also from a legal world, because in this quick sidestep here, I promised our elders realized that in the sixties and seventies and started recording each other, recording information. Where did you live? Who did you talk to? How did this happen? Day-to-day information. Well, when you roll around to a world where water is the most valuable thing and water rights mm-hmm. are being fought in billion dollar settlements. Turns out it's the words of those elders, the information they recorded, unknowing that this battle over water, that was Mm -hmm. that was the foundation of, you know, my tribe's legal argument and we just settled our water rights. And so it's, it's always been wonderful. And so that's when the elders would say back then, let's go travel. Let's go talk. We would do it. That was me absorbing their wisdom and them suggesting. Mm -hmm. This is going to be important. And then it grew. There would be times where agencies would approach us. They'd have projects, airport expansions, logging. Mm -hmm. And I would be asking the elders, okay, what can we do? I need some input here. And we started to grow together as I learned more about how to facilitate this legal world, this procedural world, they were able to also grow in that arena. So they understood why I was asking things. But they would also, in so many ways, just they refused to cater to this new law, right? For them, right. I'm so old. That you know, mm-hmm. preservation act, this newfangled, law. <laughs>
2: right?
1: It was important because, you know, I don't have her words off the top of my head, but that Marsha Powell I mentioned did this article preservation as perpetuation, and it was really a great statements in there about how, when you look at these so-called experts in the world, you look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders.
3: Absolutely.
1: They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. And so her thing was trying to take these federal constructs. And I know I mentioned this a minute ago, but to force it through this tribal lands, it's never going to be ours. We're not in that position where we're guiding this United States and the legislation to the degree we want. But if we can take these and tailor them to the extent practical, and a lot of that was, we're going to lead with what she called our cultural truths. The information we know to be true that we don't need an archeologist or a geologist or somebody else to verify. They may come up with information that aligns with our cultural truth, Mm -hmm. but it's never used to justify. So the elders would always take that tact where they would talk about the history, our oral histories, our traditional knowledge that we knew. And then I would try to find ways to fill in around it so we could help inform agencies, prime companies, whoever, on ways that they could accommodate areas of significance, cultural practices, and especially early two thousands. When I started moving in that arena it was much tougher to still do that and to get people to accept this different dynamic, because what do you mean? You're not going to dig this side up and prove to me you were here. You know, they were still wrestling with the, why should we just believe, you know, even though you guys have been here since time immemorial, why should we believe you? We paid your least. 150 years, so it, it was good for me though, because I grew up seeing that in my profession and it's something that I've fought for now for over 20 years and it's becoming so much more commonplace. The concepts of traditional knowledge, I mean, you, maybe you guys aren't aware, but President Biden put out that memo in November during the Tribal Nations Summit about increasing what indigenous knowledge and federal decision-making clarified that when they say best available science, that includes indigenous knowledge from people. That's
3: fantastic. So yeah,
1: there's a work group right now. It's developing guidance. It's just guidance, but it's to help federal agencies understand you're going to get something you're probably not familiar with. How do you bring that into your decision-making? How do you build a structure within your decision-making so that you can accommodate that and. How can you do it so you're not sitting on the other side, somebody who's completely lacks knowledge in this field, but these people who are normally subject matter experts, helping them understand. This is where you step aside and just allow this information to populate. Right. You know what you're trying to do. You're not, you know, judging its authenticity. And it's it's taken time, but I've seen. From the, the foundation, my elders set and, and Marsha, who's one of my elders, the paths that they took to really try to recalibrate how that's paid off, but it's taken multiple generations to get there. There's, I guess they're not our kids anymore, right? There's professionals in the, pre- the tra- tribal preservation office that I left. Right. Who were barely alive, you know, when Marsha was starting her battles, wow. if they were, and I came in a kid into that, I picked up what she did and I left and now those new professionals are marching forward. So that's one of the great things as we move through, you know, Marcia now being that elder, that perspective, you know, that seed that she planted, watching that blossom and she might've planted the seed as it comes to this. Legal process that we're working, but even she is very articulate at, at, characterizing how she learned these from her elders and how it is we need to approach the world. And by moving away from who we are, those cultural truths, we are no longer Salish, you know, or or those are the Salish and, and Kootenai people on our reservation. At that point, we might as well not be a tribe if we give up who we are, our language and our way of thinking, and it's not easy. It was never meant to be easy, trying to blend it into this new world. There's always been challenges. You know, this one just happens to be ours. How do we continue to exist with the challenges we have in front of us and hopefully grow in the process? So that has been a, a success. There's plenty of times I fell down, but that one's at least been a success so far it's growing.
3: Yeah.
2: Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. Our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA Continuing Education Services provider. Upon completion, we handle everything, from reporting your hours directly to the AIA to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media. Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds Podcast, where we tell the stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries.
3: Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left out. One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp! What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates were these women. They had field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work. And obviously, they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of, like, dresses or whatever else.
0: While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying
2: to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school, just taking it day by day. Yes, But not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an
0: honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did.
3: These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction, and development for over a century.
2: From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform.
3: Let's fill the gaps in history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be part of a movement to expand industry narratives. And having to justify your existence, as exhausting as it is, I'm sure, that resonates with me because it's the expectation that people of color will justify and continually show proof of their existence and their value, particularly to professionals or subject matter experts. And so working with those subject matter experts to help them realize that they need to step aside because they're not the expert in all this. And uh, there are areas of their expertise where there are blind spots. So that's super fascinating. And I'm grateful that's part of the work you've been doing. Also, sorry that you've had to do it. It's the
1: both and. It's just so interesting being in this world, because if you ever want to have an awkward conversation, right, you can go to your tribe and you ask like a revered elder who you might not know, but they likely knew your parents and your grandparents and your aunts and uncles. And because of this national historic preservation I like this world that we're in, I'm asking them to, to reveal sensitive cultural information about a law they have no idea about. And when you try to explain it to somebody, mm-hmm. it doesn't always make the most sense. <laughs> right. And then you tell them, yeah, by the way, I need this in this amount of time. I'm giving it to this agency, and there's a chance that it might not change anything. And it's always so fascinating seeing how. They look at you like you're one of the stupidest people and <laughs> how far that apple fell from the tree of the family they used to like so much. And it's at those points in time, those other elders would come in and save me. Cause I speak a little Salish, but those that are fluent would come in and they would start talking in Salish and they could talk. Mike Durglow would be talking, Felicity McDonald, all these elders that have passed, but they'd talk in Salish and I'd sit there real quiet, pick up bits and pieces. Remember when we left Mike Durglow, who worked with me closely. He was my department head for a long time. I'd ask him, I said, so what did you guys talk about? He said, well, they told us, or they told me they didn't know what you were talking about, so I had to explain to him with Salish and they understood, (laughs) but they thought that you tried hard. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Well. And like he said, he goes, there's no way to communicate it when their understanding of the world was so different. You know, we're trying to bring this federal framework down to this cultural level. So yeah, those were always humbling for me and something I prepared for as I went out to look a fool, but doing <laughs> it for good intentions and trying to help. So,
3: Hey, uh, Looking a fool in the name of preservation. I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And like the disconnect that sometimes exists between history and memory, or rather um, when it's history to someone, but memory to someone else and having to make those connect and having to then also explain the significance. Because sometimes um, I I have this when I'm talking to my grandmother, she sometimes writes off things that she remembers. She's like, oh, it wasn't that important. It wasn't that big a deal. Or she'd be like, oh, grandma, that's history. That's talking about. Let's talk about it. But it's just the different feeling, different Reminder importance that's placed on it when it's memory versus history.
1: Exactly. And how, you know, those emotions and those memories are so involved with those other aspects of their life. You know, I was like, my dad never wanted to talk about his youth because of how hard his life was, you know, his dad was dead by 12 and his mom left shortly after he had his two-year-old sister, you know, and, and those were times that he talked about school being optional, you know, they trapped. And, and hunted for a living. And he's just, he didn't see growing up in that world that a lot of people, right? They pay to go have those kinds of experiences. For him, it was a struggle and right. better left behind because it's just painful. But for me, it's like, by the way, I kind of need to know that for work. Oh, right, <laughs> somebody <laughs> wants to do something over there and we're trying to help inform the process so they can make some better decisions. Right. And, uh, Family was always the toughest critic, though. Acquire—that's what he'd say. You're just going to put it in a database. So it's dumb database. He'd say, "I don't want it in there." All right, Uncle. <laughs> I'll leave.
3: Uh, you know, that there's there's a place for databases, but yeah, they can be quite dumb. <laughs> unfortunately. And so I'm already blown away. Why don't we then pivot a little bit? So you've already touched on some of the differences in preservation from a Western versus Indigenous perspective, as well as your work as a TIPO versus and some of the interaction you've had to do with the Shippos and all that kind of stuff. Are there any other cultural perspective differences that you wish more preservation students? who aren't as familiar with tribal practices you wish that they would be more mindful of as they're navigating the space?
1: Well, that is a tough question, right? We're starting with clock. Um, I think in so many ways, it's just that trust and acceptance. You know, there's a term of art, you know, if you're in an anthropology field or, you know, if you're just somebody smart, right, to not be ethnocentric. Don't force everybody's understanding of the world to align with how you see things, it's unfair. And you were hitting on that earlier, you know, to the the subject matter experts. And those are some of the challenges because if people look at what they're truly trying to achieve when they talk with somebody, it's not about extracting information, right? It's about creating partnerships. It's about further informing an action or a path forward. And people pursue things collaboratively in a way where both people, both parties tried to gain, not always going to happen. But if there's that pursuit of good, that's one uh, of the greatest things that can happen because we've seen so many times, people are scared to get tried as bad news. Well, we can't do what they said and they don't want to Ah, Boy, they're not going to be happy. I said, well, they might not be, but they're going to be less happy if you delay They're going to be less happy if you try to lie, because you got to realize Indian tribes, they are also dealing with policing, child welfare, taxing roads, and a whole suite of other things. They might not be happy, but to wasting their time, uh, belittling them, thinking that they can't handle bad news, those are all completely inappropriate. And they have that very paternalistic tone it's still, it's strong out there. It's becoming better. But if you can look across the aisle, it's important to recognize, yes, an Indian tribe is a political entity. It has a treaty or it has some other status and due to the United States executive order, you must respect in a government to government manner. But if your intent is that good natured, and these are people. It's going to help break down so many of those other barriers because the, the amount of negative things we've heard, it's unfortunate the way that attacks are personal, it's unfortunate that purely because of a belief that a different person has, they will limit an entire people's, an Indian tribe's ability to participate or express themselves and share their concerns. Because from a government perspective, right? If you're a student coming up, it's, you have to know how much power you have as an employee that works with tribes, as a decision maker somewhere, who needs to be accountable, but you also just need to be compassionate. And it's a weird thing to say in this field, right? Laws and and process, but the compassion is looking at the ways that you are supposed to provide that deference that you're supposed to see beyond yourself and try to walk a mile in their shoes to use that old saying and that's really it's simple have compassion care and try it's hard there's a lot of work to do we're dealing with it right now you know for me every administration provides you opportunities this administration, there's a lot of people that have a tribal background that want to advance interest for Indian tribes. So I spend less time explaining Indian things to them and they already know the issue, it's about how do we resolve it? Well, the result is we're doing a lot. We're doing a lot fast. That doesn't mean I discount anybody's decisions because I'm busy. I don't discount their positions because we're trying to balance 574 different tribal nations and their concerns, Mm -hmm. it's a choice I made in the role I'm at, Mm -hmm. and that's, what's important. And whether you're looking at federal staff, private companies, you chose to be where you're at, do your best not to impose upon those other people around you and cause what can be really like compounding issues, cut off access or you take away a site from a people, it's not as if there's another one, you can't replicate culture. There's an association with that. There's a cultural practice associated with that. And while Western society really compartmentalizes that, you know, at least, you know, for tribal people, lots of other indigenous people, people of color that goes into your social fabric of who you are. It goes into your emotional, you know, fabric for tribes. When you look at some of the things that we suffer from because of the isolation, right? Practices, whether it's, it's medical from diabetes or depression, the culture is one of the few things that we have. It's not just a chapter in a NEPA document that you can look past and separate it from the environmental justice and separate it from the natural resource, our cultural resources. Those cultural resources are a component of our governmental structure. That is how we raise our children and how we interact with each other. So it's just realizing people are doing things different. And we do a lot with the colleges, Salish Kootenai College, which is a tribal college out on the Flathead Indian Reservation, where I'm from, we have an MOU with their tribal historic preservation degree program. And we're working with these students, unlike myself who fumbled my way into preservation, we're trying to work with them. So they're better equipped. They see a path in front of them. They understand what challenges are and they can prepare themselves so they can help other people be that conduit like I was, but they can also do it faster. They don't need to be 40 in waiting to be in this type of position I am. They can be here when they got a lot more energy to tackle all of this work. So the, the students are really the future. And that's true of all cultures. In tribal culture in particular, we're always looking at those next generations. You know, what we're doing now was gifted to us by our ancestors, but it's not ours. It's, you know, ours to improve for those subsequent generations. And that's a lot of that seventh generation discussion is you're working out that many generations and it what it does is it helps you understand the importance of what you do for those future generations but it's not that tragedy of the commons where everybody just looks out for themselves you start to see what it's going to take to be sustainable and to have beneficial outcomes so as tribal people we're trying to do that into that educational system it's been digging out of some rough times the legacy of colonization and everything that comes with it, but we're working now. We're working with partners, non-tribal partners. We're, uh, doing what we can for outreach. We're not erasing any history. We're not hiding from it. We're not even accepting it. History. That's a part. It's just what it is. We don't have to be happy about it, but I am where I am. And what I'm going to do is everything I can to hopefully improve it for that next generation while we continue to work with where we're at. So we're excited about that Salish Kootenai College, MOU because the, the guy who's was running the program, Dean Nikolai, somebody that I've crossed paths with for 35 years from horse track to firefight, to, to preservation with we the to college together. But the students are great. We've had interns. We got an employee now that used to be a student there, the Tipo. Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for my tribe, the position I used to have. That's a former intern I hired when I was the Tipo. So you're seeing that beautiful succession. I'm seeing myself get replaced real fast. doesn't make me feel good about myself, but it's great to see that those efforts in the same way for me, I can track back to Marsha Pablo and she can track back to people like White Dairglow directly and Tony Incasoles that were able to see that continuity. That was something that the government tried to fracture take from us through that assimilation. They tried to break these practices. They tried to break our lifeways, And we've been able to rebuild what we can and we're continuing to work in that arena. So that for me, long winded answer, but that's where that compassion comes in, where when we can go to people who aren't in our tribe. Mm-hmm. And they are willing to accept our positions, uh, our thoughts. It's okay to ask for clarification or to not understand in work, but to actually look to collaborate and build together. It's so much more important than people realize.
3: That's it. Like you hit on it. It's the, the compassion and the empathy and the importance of that and telling the full history because telling it like it was, like it is, doesn't change what happened. But being able to acknowledge what happened is the only way we can actually move forward to make a better future for everyone. So you're going to blow so many people's minds. I don't know if you realize this or not. Um, and there's going to be a lot of students who are going to be super excited and wanting to get more involved.
1: Well, we look forward to working with students. I uh, want any of them to reach out. I feel bad because everybody's <laughs> like, wow, it's the advisory council. And I always tell them this. and This isn't a slant. I don't work at the advisory council because it's cream of the crop place. I work there because I can effectuate change. If that ever ceases to be, I will not be in that position. But for the agency is the ACHP is wonderful. They are trying. We have no lane. We have like 40 people trying to cover a nationwide considerations across all agencies and undertakings. You couldn't have staff that was more willing to work with people. So the agency broadly, I want to say for anybody out there is doing what it can. We look forward to partnerships coordinating with people to advance this. Check us out at achp.gov. We have different offices in there. We always have internships available and everybody at that agency is trying to advance these interests to make sure that culture and history and preservation has a voice and has the opportunity to be heard. But we can't do it without you. We're here to amplify really the people's voice. So everybody that's out there, we're here to help you. And just look us up, contact us anytime.
3: Thank you so much for listening. Links to amazing resources can be found in the episode's show notes. Special thanks to Sarah Gilberg for allowing me to use snippets of her song, Fireflies, from her debut album, Other People's Secrets, which by the way, is available wherever music is sold. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show And now that Tangible Remnants is part of the Gable Media Network, you can listen and subscribe to all network partner content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L, media.com. Until next time. Remember that historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling our inclusive history
2: saw the first fireflies of summer, and right then I thought of
3: you, oh I could see us catching them
2: and setting them free, honey that's what you do,
3: that's what you do to me.